Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Miller, the Chief Dermatologist at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. My conversation with Dr. Miller focuses primarily on the topic of leadership. As someone responsible for overseeing an entire medical department during a pandemic, I wanted to ask him, how do you keep morale steady without sacrificing patient satisfaction? How do you make sure that your colleagues and your staff don't succumb to increased anxiety, distress, or fatigue? How do you care for your patients during a time of social distancing? How do you instill hope during a time of profound uncertainty? Dr. Miller's leadership style reminds me of how Doris Kearns Goodwin described Franklin Delano Roosevelt's leadership style in her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Discussing President Roosevelt's response to difficult questions, she wrote, the answer to all such questions lay in Roosevelt's leadership style. Establish a clear purpose, challenge the team to work out details, traverse conventional departmental boundaries, set large long-term and short-term targets, create tangible success to generate accelerated growth and momentum. Dr. Miller's leadership style, as you'll hear in this episode, checks each of those boxes. He's managing a department seamlessly during a time of severe stress. Not only that, but he's doing it in a way that inspires hope, not only for his own team, but for our community writ large. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Dr. Miller. All right, I'm here with Dr. Jeff Miller. Dr. Miller, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about... Um, your role at the medical center, particularly, you know, what leadership looks like in a time like this in medicine. But I do know that you come from family of medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your inspiration to go into this field and um, growing up the son of a doctor? Yes, I grew up in a small town, Danville, Pennsylvania. A lot of healthcare workers know Danville, Pennsylvania, because that's where Geisinger Medical Center is. And Danville was a town that was really dominated, not dominated, but just had a lot of physicians. So I grew up with a physician father. I had a lot of uh, role models in the community who were physicians. So I would say at an early age, I really wanted to become a physician. Um, and uh, I'm very fortunate uh, to have a father who is a, a great role model who uh, really taught us uh, the meaning and calling and duty of, of, of being a physician. And um, it's just been an absolutely great career. I'm also proud that my uh, younger brother uh, trained with us at Hershey Medical Center, and now he is a physician uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. All three of us are dermatologists. And now your oldest son, John, is following in your footsteps too, right? Yes, yeah, so John is a first-year medical student at Jefferson, now called uh, Sidney Kimmel 
Medical College in Philadelphia. So he's in the throes of having a new format for his education uh, given the COVID-19 pandemic. So all of their learning right now is remote learning. Hmm. So he's had to make adjustments and fortunately uh, he's thriving and doing well. Well, it's great to hear, but also not surprising. I know how hard John works. Um, you wear many hats at the medical center. Could you describe your role for us? My primary role at the medical center is the uh, chair of the Department of Dermatology. And what chair means is that I take on the leadership role uh, in, in the dermatology department. And you take on that role of service uh, with a lot of humility. Uh, fortunately, I'm surrounded by a great team of leaders uh, in the department. And as a chair um, at the Hershey Medical Center, the College of Medicine, you know, we are asked to deliver um, a high quality experience and outcome when it comes to patient care, when it comes to research, when it comes to education, and when it comes to community service or community health. Um, so in addition to um, leading a great team of uh, healthcare professionals in the Department of Dermatology, I also uh, play a role in helping to coordinate uh, strategic planning, um, mainly right now in the College of Medicine. And the College of Medicine is uh, where the education and research is housed within our medical center. Can you walk us through a little bit the timeline from your perspective in terms of when you first learned of the coronavirus? I mean, I know uh, each department, I'm sure, has its own concerns and has to adapt and respond uh, in the moment, day by day. But um, when was the first kind of recognition that you had, whether it was reading it in the news or having a meeting with uh, other leaders at the medical center? Um, just tell us a little bit about the timeline from your vantage point. Yes. So as a dermatologist, you know, we are not you know, on the front lines, uh, taking care of COVID-19 positive patients who are hospitalized or are in the intensive care unit. And right now, I think we have 14 patients who are COVID positive. I started learning about this, and I would say our team started learning about this, you know, when it was first reported uh, coming out of China. That was early January. And in the medical community, Tom, they really share news. Uh, the medical community is r relatively tight, where as dermatologists, I would say as uh, ear, nose, and throat surgeons, uh, the communities of physicians uh, share news. So we were learning about the spread of this virus in China and following the story in January and then started preparing as a medical center, you know, in February uh, and now in, in, in uh, March. So it's been an evolution, Tom, and I think what I have learned is that we have a great team at the medical center who is in charge of what we call an incident center where they're planning every day, making sure we have appropriate supplies, making sure staff is trained, making sure we have 
the proper rooms uh, for patients who are positive. Um, we have the proper testing in place. And that requires a shift of employees full-time being dedicated to this incident center. And as dermatologists, we have to say, well, what is our role? What is our duty? How can we contribute to this COVID-19 pandemic? And I can share with you that our department, uh, fortunately, was planning on how to deliver dermatology remotely. We call that telemedicine, uh, specifically teledermatology. And because we were ahead of the curve and preparing for how to deliver medicine remotely, we are in the beginning of talks to say, how can we help other departments stand up a remote platform in order to really help our patients have continuity of care during this pandemic? Um, and so that's been one of our, I think, one of our roles. The other part I can share with you is just, it's wonderful to see our nurses, Tom. The nursing team is being deployed um, across the medical center. We have nurses who are being asked to help screen uh, patients or, and employees uh, when they come in. Uh, temperatures are checked daily. Uh, we have one of our administrators who's gonna be working for an entire week in the incident center. So we've had to adapt our roles and we've had to ask the question, you know, how can we contribute uh, to um, the whole system uh, given uh, the pandemic because roles and responsibilities are uh, being redefined. And, I'm, and, and again, I just wanna emphasize, I'm really proud to see our leadership team uh, take this seriously and um, and they're doing everything they can to prepare our team of healthcare professionals and serve the community. What's been your approach, just from a leadership perspective, in terms of keeping morale high, making sure that your your uh, your staff and your colleagues are psychologically sound, that their mental health is good? I was uh, just reading a study last week published in the Journal of American uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, and they reported that. Healthcare workers are experiencing at the moment very high symptoms of depression, anxiety, distress. As a leader, how do you navigate a crisis like this without also sacrificing the uh, the ability of your staff to really play their part? Yeah, Tom. You know, um, it's it's required absolute teamwork uh, to pull together. Um, and get through this. Um, and I, I think two stories uh, really, um, you know, highlight uh, the impact that this has. And it's, the first story was, you know, I round every day and rounding means I, I walk through our clinic and spend time with all the different groups and talk to them and see how they're doing. And on the day when uh, we learned that one of our team members was COVID positive, COVID-19 positive, I sat down with uh, the staff that checks patients in and checks patients out. And two of the staff members, you know, had tears in their eyes. And I, I said, what, what are you feeling? And the, ma the major feeling they have, you know, is anxiety. And I think that that's a normal feeling. Uh, they have a little bit of grief. Um, and, and people right now, and I think they're starting to emerge from this, have 
a sense of of just basic survival. Uh, that's where they are. You know, how am I going to provide for my family? Am I going to get a paycheck? Will mm -hmm. I have job security? Am I going to be safe? Is my family going to be safe? So that's one story that uh, really illustrated the impact. And then we had a team member who was COVID-19 positive. And I think when, when that happened, Tom, it really hit home that, you know, this is real. It's not theoretical. We're reading it in the news. No one is immune from COVID-19. And fortunately, uh, that person did really well and has fully recovered. But that was an emotional uh, journey uh, because everyone wanted to reach out and help. Um, one of our faculty members went and got takeout and delivered uh, food for their family at night. And those are the little things that matter. So I would say that my role um, is uh, also changed and evolved to be comforter in chief. And, and that means that it's okay to talk about how we feel. It's um, acknowledge those feelings, give that team the psychological safety to speak up and uh, discuss those emotions. Um, I think you and I shared an article uh, uh, in the Harvard Business Review. Mm. I forget the author, but uh, you know, let it let those emotions run through you. Don't let them overtake you. And I charge each individual who's struggling to say, what can you do to control those emotions? What steps can you take? So, for example, we're wearing masks now in the hospital. That makes the staff members feel safer um, and 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 if the emotions do get out of control this is another just uh, an, another great story is that our leadership team has assembled a team of experts to deal with the psychological impact for employees who are struggling and that's a specific task force within the entire health system and uh, and that just goes to show you that you know healthcare workers uh, just like workers, I would say, at the grocery stores right now, they're heroes. But we are not immune, as you pointed out, to the emotions of dealing with uh, the unknown. And, um, you know, we're going to get through it. I'm confident of that. And I see, Tom, this is the best news. Every day I'm starting to see more confidence in mm. people. And, uh, and that's, been a, that's, that, that's made me feel good. But my role has continued to be, uh, you know, comforter-in-chief. Uh, other faculty, other leaders in the department are stepping up just as much as I am. And it's, it's wonderful to see that. What has been, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit is the medical students. And so, you know, I, I was talking to my uncle, uh, graduated from law school uh, during 9-11. Um, you know, I've had relatives and friends enter, uh, you know, graduate from college and enter the marketplace after the Great Recession this generation will be entering their careers during a pandemic. And I think especially for medical students, that must be surreal. Um, have you had any conversations with students at the medical school or even staff? And what do you, what, what would you say to a medical student on the verge of graduating who's getting ready to enter the medical world in its current state? I think medical students, just like healthcare workers, are dealing with the same levels of anxiety and grief. Mm. And um, 
we are in, in our department, I have two educational leaders, Dr. Kirby and Dr. Flam, and they have involved medical students uh, in uh, educational efforts uh, because they've had to adapt uh, in, 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 in uh, they've had to adapt their learning to COVID-19. And I, and I think of a Viktor Frankl line, uh, Viktor Frankl who wrote In Search of Meaning, um, and adapting that is, you know, we, we didn't choose this pandemic, but we, we can choose our response. And I've seen medical students rise to the occasion. And, and I just, again, share a, a few stories, which I think will make everyone feel that the future of medicine is very bright. Uh, we have a team of medical students that deliver a report uh, of the latest news. And it's, it's like a newsletter that comes out and it's up to date. And the faculty um, really appreciate uh, that information. So they're working behind the scenes. Uh, we've involved medical students in our Department of Dermatology in different projects related to COVID-19. For example, uh, we have staff who are developing uh, rashes and skin breakdown behind the ears uh, mm. because of wearing masks all the time. So we're working uh, in, on a project, trying to understand ways to prevent that. Um, we have a conference tomorrow, uh, and it's all remote learning. And we have a medical student who will be uh, leading one of the discussions in that conference. So the medical students are adapting, and, and, and that's difficult. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for them uh, to, uh, to, to apply a, a life lesson that uh, there's always going to be some level of pain. There's always going to be ambiguity. Um, but it's how you deal with it. How do you respond to it? And, and I think that that's a really important lesson for them because as a physician, you have to be resilient. Uh, you, you have to be able to adapt, and I'm seeing them adapt. You mentioned uh, at the top of our conversation that the medicine or the medical community already has a pretty robust system in place where doctors across the country, even across the globe, share information with one another. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday expanding on that and saying even more now, never before has the world's scientific and medical community been so vigilant on a single topic. There has been reports of doctors sharing information from Wuhan, China, from Italy, from Washington, here in the United States. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you're seeing in the medical community in terms of sharing information regardless of um, geographic boundaries or practice? Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a really important message. Um, you know, I, I think of um, the leadership of Dr. Fauci right now, who I think has become, you know, a, a trusted statesman and how he's, he and, he and Dr. Burks have, um, you know, shared facts, uh, have been very honest. And that's very important. And, and in the medical community, um, a lot of the research uh, came out of China. Uh, the, 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 the sequencing of the DNA, understanding the genome of, 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 of COVID-19 um, came you know, from China. And what happens in the medical community on a, on a high level is that information is, is shared. Uh, these uh, academic uh, and research discoveries are being published uh, in, in rapid fashion um, so that they can be um, 
published online and not go through the normal review process where it can take months for a, uh, an article to come to publication. So information is being shared and uh, there's no geographic boundaries. There's no, um, there, there's no nationalism when it comes to sharing uh, the medical information. Uh, the scientists and physicians are very focused on uh, discovering a treatment. Now, obviously, uh, physicians tend to be uh, type A, very competitive. Uh, you want to be the first uh, to develop that vaccine. But it's just wonderful to see uh, information being shared um, across scientists around the globe uh, because we're all in this. This is a global pandemic. Um, and I can share just something, you know, specifically, and I don't have all the details, but I'm very cl close with our other leaders uh, in the, in, in, at the medical center. And Dr. The, the, um, the physician who is in charge of ear, nose, uh, of the physician who's in charge of head and neck surgery, you know, learned quickly from his colleagues uh, that surgeons who are working in the airways, that are working in the oral cavity, so ear, nose, and throat doctors, head and neck surgeons, uh, that term can be used interchangeably, they're at high risk for a high viral burden. And unfortunately, physicians in that field are having a higher mortality rate compared to, let's say, a dermatologist because our viral load exposure is small. And so that's led to sharing of how do we protect uh, you know, physicians, and again, I can say our leadership team has been very focused on um, personal protective equipment for physicians who are on the front line. But it was that sharing of information to say, hey, this, these are the steps that you need to be taking because we don't want this to happen to you. Uh, and, and, and again, those are what the medical community, medical community tends to be tight knit and we keep sharing information. And as a dermatologist, uh, it is just wonderful to see the departments across the country uh, sharing lessons learned. Um, and and it's, 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 it's a story that I think makes us, uh, helps us get through this to realize that we're in this together. And, it, and again, it's teamwork at an incredibly high level. I was just going to say the same thing. You know, it's so heartening and uplifting to hear that the medical community is working together. I mean, imagine if I asked you that question and you said, you know what, we're having a really difficult time accessing information there ten, there's uh, each practice is being rigid about the sharing of information that would definitely lead to more you know anxiety and uncertainty but the fact that it's the opposite is really heartening to hear um where do you yeah. see the future of medicine in, in your department after this i mean you mentioned uh telemedicine at the beginning you know in many ways i think a crisis is the midwife to innovation but uh, I, it sounds like this entire dynamic has catapulted the innovation, especially from the dermatology side of things. Where do you see medicine emerging from this crisis? I, I the, Tom, there's going to be a new um, a, a new sense of normal, you know, after this crisis, and I can't say for sure what that normal will be. One thing I do feel that will be part of the new normal uh, post-COVID pandemic. And again, there will be a post-COVID uh, sense of normal, and it's going to be a, a great normal, um, is that I think we're going to see more telehealth. I think we're going to see um, more people 
doing uh, remote um, access to their physicians and having care delivered remotely. Um, How does that work I exactly, think, Dr. Miller? If you're a patient, yeah. what does that look like? Yeah, so let's say, Tom, you're my patient uh, and you're scheduled for a visit. This is the way we're handling it right now. Um, we've decreased foot traffic only to urgent patients in our clinic. So only patients who have something absolutely urgent, like a bleeding growth, for example. Uh, so we're seeing anywhere from five to 10 patients per day. But the patients uh, who are on the schedule are being contacted and saying, Tom, would you um, like to be seen uh, remotely via a secure video conference? Um, and Dr. Miller will be able to uh, you know, take your history, do an exam. You can also attach photos uh, to the uh, platform that we use for the video conference. So in other words, it's a live video feed over a secure line, but you can also uh, attach photos of specific lesions. We have, we conduct a, a normal history. You know, tell me about your growth. Uh, oh, let me take a look at it via the video. Do you have something better, higher quality? Yeah, here's an image that I took with my phone. Let me, let me pull that up. And as we're doing that, I'm documenting your visit in our electronic medical record. I have your pharmacy, I have your updated medications, uh, your allergies, and I'm able to deliver a plan of care. And if I'm not comfortable delivering the plan of care, I can say, you know what, Tom, let's wait uh, until things are back to normal. I really think you need to be seen in person. Or I can triage it and say, you know, Tom, this is something that looks a little more serious. Let's get this seen in clinic. And what we're finding out in our studies is that about 80% of what we see can be seen and taken care of from a high quality fashion remotely. So I think that's going to be the new, you know, a new normal. We're going to see more of telehealth uh, and specifically teledermatology in our field. And one of the great things that's happened uh, with COVID-19, uh, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing all this pain and suffering because that's very real and that's what we're focused on. But one of the positives, as you said earlier, that um, necessity is the uh, mother of, of invention, is that we've had rules and regulations that have been relaxed from a telehealth standpoint. And um, I think we're going to continue to see that those rules and regulations that we have in place uh, are going to be uh, relaxed uh, post-COVID, and it's going to be easier for us to deliver care. And the rules and regulations are in place to ensure high quality, to ensure privacy. But I think we're going to see an acceleration of those rules and regulations being uh, addressed in the favor of the patients so that they can receive this care and in favor of the physicians and healthcare professionals to deliver the care. And so I do see that that's going to be a new sense of normal. The other part, which I don't know what the new normal will be, is I wonder post-COVID what will be the uptick in patients coming back to the hospital. Hmm. Will there be a sense of concern? Will there be a sense of, boy, I hope that virus isn't still out there. Do I really need to come to see the doctor? That's one thing I've thought about. The other thing I've thought about is that, as you know, um, healthcare is <laughs> a big topic uh, for you um, as, as you, uh, you know, run your campaign. But in the era of employer-based insurance with high deductibles, I also wonder um, what, what impact that will have. You know, is there going to be an, a new economic reality for individuals, small business owners, um, even 
patients who do have health care insurance through their employer, you know, like where I work. And will they be saying, you know what, I just don't have the money right now. I don't have the money to spend on my high deductible. I'm going to delay care. And as you know, that can be an, a perverse incentive because you can be delaying something that is serious. So I, I think we just have to. I think we just have to learn uh, and have conversations um, with key stakeholders uh, to understand what the new normal will be. And there will be a new normal, and it's going to be okay. No, it's funny you mentioned that, just because um, I read recently that they are expecting a potential 40% increase in deductibles, um, at least through the duration of the pandemic. And then who knows what that will look like afterwards. And so I've even thought about this from a political standpoint. What does the aftermath of this look like? I mean, you know, our election has been postponed to June 2nd. Will there be a lingering fear of congregating in groups? Will people go to the polls? Um, what, what does it mean for sporting events? Uh, you know, to your point about the hospital, will there be kind of a stigma associated with the, you know, what we're going through right now in the same circumstances and potentially exposing yourself to it again? So I think you raise a really interesting point, just what does society do afterwards and how do we react? Um, yeah, I think that's a good, um, I agree. I think all, there's going to be a, you know, all businesses um, are impacted right now. And, um, the analogy, it's going to be like a wound, a wound on the skin. And I think that Band-Aid is going to be have to have to be taken off uh, gently. Uh, I don't think we're just going to be able to rip off the Band-Aid and mm. the wound is better. And it's going to take a little time and we're just going to have to learn about it. Um, you know, and, you know, some of the things that I'm happy about is that patients who have COVID-19, we have insurance companies stepping up to say, you know, your your co-pays are waived. I'm not sure what they're saying about, you know, the hospital-based fees, but I think it's going to give everyone pause to say, what does healthcare mean uh, for, um, you know, our society as a whole, and 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 hopefully it will 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 accelerate that discussion too. What are um, in response to this pandemic and a future pandemic that we cannot predict, what lessons have, what lessons can we learn? Um, how do we look in the mirror and say what did we not do well? What did we do well? And I think there's I think I think that will be an interesting conversation at the national level. I don't have the answers, but I anticipate that conversation happening. Uh, that notion of self reflection actually is a good segue into what I wanted to. Um, ask you about in these last few minutes. Uh, you were an English major at Notre Dame. Um, I studied English myself. Uh, I was disheartened to read recently that humanities and liberal arts are really dropping at universities right now. Uh, classes are being cut in size. Professors are being let off or laid off. Um, what if? What is your humanities background? Your study of English. Um, it's a different path, I, I would imagine, from the normal medical route. What has your humanities experience taught you for a time like this? Yeah, oh boy, that's a, that's a great question. And um, I'd like to tackle it from two angles. Uh, the first is uh, uh, at the medical center. Um, the, your listeners, uh, maybe even you, may not know that uh, Penn State Medical Center, the College of Medicine, was the first 
medical school in the entire country to have a department of humanities. Mm. And that department of humanities has put a, um, a footprint on our students' medical education. And Tom, as I reflect back on my background in English, um, I would simply say that a background in the humanities helps me uh, be informed about the human condition. Um, and those are the stories that you read about um, in a variety of works. And the, the human condition is uh, universal. Um, and we are fortunate that we have authors around the world who can tell a story, um, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, that can really um, help us reflect on, on, on the human condition. Um, you know, as to make it real and personal, um, all four of my siblings uh, who are in a variety of fields we all had, um, we all majored in the humanities, uh, mostly English. And, uh, and, and we're fortunate again to have a father who really focused on the humanities uh, and, and really encouraged us uh, to um, you know, read uh, and uh, take advantage uh, of, of those types of courses when we were in college. And, and um, my older brother, uh, Greg, uh, is an investment banker, but he also um, does a lot of, um, he, ha he, has a, he has an art collection and a publishing company that really looks at the impact of uh, contemporary art and how it informs our culture. And he wants to preserve contemporary art as a part of our culture. And, and we're, we're fortunate, too, that uh, we have an endowment uh, that we started, uh, really, um, it's my dad and Greg, uh, my older brother, um, where we invite a speaker every year uh, to come to our campus to speak about the humanities and, and how it uh, impacts us as physicians. Um, and, um, and, and so, you know, I, I think for me as a leader, um, you know, I can't push that down people's throat uh, because everyone approaches their education from their own and unique way and, and their own and unique way is their right way. But what I can do is just, uh, you know, gently influence, um, you know, others uh, through my background in the humanities and, and the humanities has led me to really focus. And, and again, it's I want to just state this up front, you do not have to have a background in the humanities to be focused intensely on the patient experience. But I think it's that human connection uh, that it's really helped me, um, you know, and I'd say gives me the most uh, satisfaction as a physician uh, is the human connection with each and every patient, understanding their story. No, it's, um, that's element of understanding somebody's stories, I think, powerful not only from a personal connection standpoint but from a leadership and inspirational standpoint knowing that we're not in this alone knowing that everybody's navigating the situation a little differently but that we're all trying to seek the same goal what would you say uh to close here what would you say to folks in central pennsylvania right now what type of outlook should they have both long term and short term 
as we continue to get through this crisis? Yeah, um, I think everyone is going to react to this, uh, this pandemic uh, of COVID-19 um, in their own unique way. And that own unique way is okay. You know, that's natural. Um, and I would encourage everyone to uh, deal with those emotions up front, name those emotions, let them run through you, do not let them take control of you, identify those strategies. Um, I think the future uh, is bright. Uh, we as a country are taking this seriously now and uh, you can control, um, you are in control when it comes to staying home, uh, limiting your travel to essential travel, your control uh, when it comes to washing your hands, your control with not trying to have your hands touch your face. <laughs> um, and I'm confident that uh, we are going to uh, be resilient. I think the resiliency is in our DNA. Um, I'm really pleased with how Governor Wolf has led um, this charge along with uh, Dr. Uh, Rachel Levine, um, our, our, our Surgeon General. And um, the future is going to be bright. Uh, everything has a beginning and everything has an end and this will end. We just have to hunker down uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's going to be a challenge, but I'm going to end again with uh, Viktor Frankl's, uh, uh, an, adapt an adaptation from Viktor Frankl is, you know, we did not choose the choose, we did not choose this pandemic, but we can choose our response. And um, I would encourage everyone, even at work, uh, we're doing this. What, what can, what are the opportunities that we can take advantage of? Uh, now that we are quarantined, you know, we are able to spend more time with family. We are able to see uh, or develop maybe a hobby that we didn't have. And we're going to be okay. And, and I think the reason we're going to, the reason I know we're going to be okay is that we have a strong sense of community. And, and those are the, 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 the parts, that's where I find inspiration is how we all step up and care for one another. And I see that in the medical community, especially in our department. Uh, um, I see, I see our team of healthcare professionals stepping up to do their duty, wanting to be there for um, the patients, wanting to be there for one another. And by seeing that every day, it inspires me to go to work. And and I I know the future is going to be bright. Well, hearing, you know, your story of leadership in turbulent times, we see it at the, like you said, at the highest levels of government here in Pennsylvania. We're seeing it in communities across the state and across the country and hearing it firsthand from you is just another reason to leave and look forward with a sense of hope. So Dr. Miller, thank you for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Tom, thank you. Thank you for your leadership and uh, continue making a positive difference.